America at a Crossroads is a weekly live webinar series that brings together journalists, scholars, thought leaders, and policymakers for discussions regarding the state of American democracy, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. The series was jointly founded by Jews United for Democracy and Justice and Community Advocates, Inc. To register for our live webinars, join our email list at JewsUnitedForDemocracy.org. It's now my pleasure to introduce a member of the Jews United Board, a veteran of decades as the leader of Los Angeles, as both an L.A. City Councilman and an L.A. County Supervisor, an invaluable member of the America at Crossroads team, Zev Yaroslavsky. Zev? Thank you, David. Uh, thank you, Janice and Mel and our whole team. For nearly 50 years, Ambassador Dennis Ross has had an unparalleled role in negotiating among the parties in the Middle East on behalf of several United States presidents. He is currently counselor and William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He also teaches at Georgetown University. Dennis was point man on the Middle East peace process in both the George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton administrations. He served two and a half years as special assistant to President Obama. He was also the special advisor on Iran to Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. And he successfully brokered the 1997 Hebron Accord facilitated the and facilitated the 1994 Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty. It is undoubtedly safe to say that there is no one, perhaps with the exception of Henry Kissinger, uh, who has had more experience dealing with this fraught uh, political morass of the Middle East uh, than Ambassador Dennis Ross. Tonight, he is the person we would want to offer wisdom uh, and insights into what is uh, has been a very tragic uh, set of events uh, and what portends even more tragic events in the days ahead. Uh, he will be joined tonight by uh, one of our regular hosts, KCRW's Madeline Brand, a longtime and award-winning NPR broadcaster who has appeared numerous times on America at a Crossroads. Madeline is the host of her daily NPR program, Press Play, which airs on Southern California's KCRW, and she hosts a podcast and she does a lot of other things. So let me turn it over to, uh, to Madeline and to Dennis. Thank you, Zev, and thank you all for being here. And especially to you, Ambassador Ross, I know you must be very busy uh, these days. And so thank you for taking the time to speak with us and answer our multiple questions. Uh, before I get to policy questions and your analysis, I just want you to respond to, I guess, just how you're feeling about this as someone who has worked with numerous administrations on peace or the attempts at peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Looking at what's transpired over the past several days, how are you feeling about it? Uh, like everyone, uh, I don't think you've had to be a negotiator for a long time, knowing all the parties there to, to feel a kind of revulsion, a sadness, uh, a sense of madness over what has happened. Uh, this was Israel's darkest day ever. They suffered more deaths and casualties in one day than they had at any point uh, in their entire history. You think about all the wars that Israel fought, 48, 56, 67, 73, 82, uh, the conflicts with Hamas previously, uh, <laughs> sorry. And one of the things that you see is that uh, the casualties within Israel itself had never been like this. You have to go back to 1948 
to see anything that even approaches what you're seeing here. And even then, the numbers, they were high over the course of, of that, but they don't approach what we've seen now. We already know there's 1,200 dead. We're talking about 3,000 wounded. I mean, the numbers are staggering uh, and would be the equivalent. The number of, of deaths are the equivalent of more than 30,000 here. We suffered 3,200 on 9-11. Uh, when we say this is Israel's 9-11, it's actually worse than 9-11 because A, the numbers proportionally are much higher. B, it's ongoing. 9-11, it stopped. This is ongoing. Uh, and and Israel is, is having to cope with this. I will say this. It is extraordinary to see the Israeli response. We had watched 40 weeks of demonstrations in Israel, which a grassroots movement that was a democracy movement that showed the depth of the Israeli ethos when it comes to democracy and the readiness to defend democracy. Uh, those, 40 those 40 weeks of demonstrations with, again, the equivalent of will be millions of demonstrators here, sent a signal, I think, to Hezbollah and Hamas and Iran that maybe Israel was weak. Uh, and the irony is that as soon as this happened, we've seen an unbelievable coalescence. I can tell you those reservists reporting exceed the numbers who have been called to come in to their units. There has never been this kind of response to call-ups that we're seeing now. The, the people giving blood in Israel, you, if you see any of the pictures, people extend around blocks, uh, people organizing food banks, people organizing because it turns out that some of the stocks of, believe it or not, uh, vests, uh, bulletproof vests, uh, some of the equipment for the reservists, it seems remarkable, but there's there's shortages. And here again, you have Israelis from all walks of life uh, suddenly chipping in because there's this sense of an of not just a shock, but an existential danger and and wanting everyone to see uh, in this in the face of this, everyone comes together. So I find at a certain level, I'm also see this reassuring and a source of inspiration, but it, it's impossible not to be deeply troubled. And you feel like you walk around with a constant weight on your shoulders. Yeah. I want to get into the Israeli military response in a moment. But first, I want to get your assessment. Everybody has been wondering, and there probably won't be any definitive answers for a long time, maybe years from now, how this happened. How was it? How were they able to pretty much just bulldoze their way across a fence? launch from air, sea, and land this massive attack with no resistance from Israeli forces? So it is a question that everybody's asking, and it seems incomprehensible. Absolutely, it seems incomprehensible. So let me try to explain the incomprehensible. First, there was a fundamental strategic surprise. In all cases of strategic surprise, whether it was 9-11, whether it was Pearl Harbor, whether it was the 1973 war, all the data or the indicators that you needed to be aware of were there. They were there in plain, plain sight, but no one put them together. And no one put them together because there were a set of assumptions. And the assumptions created a kind of prism through which every factor that you saw was interpreted. So what were those assumptions? One, that Hamas, under the leadership in Gaza of Yahya Sinwar, had become increasingly concerned about trying to preserve an economic floor. And that economic floor was heavily influenced by the number of 
Palestinians from Gaza that Israel was letting in. Israel was letting in close to 20,000 workers a day. Each of those workers made 10 times what they could make if they were working in Gaza, if they could get a job at all, because there's 50% unemployment in Gaza. So number one, there was this reading that uh, Hamas was determined to preserve that, and that meant, yeah, there could be some flare-ups, but there wasn't going to be any serious effort at, uh, at a conflict. So that's number one. And number two, a couple of months ago, there the Israelis succeeded in killing in the West Bank uh, an Islamic Jihad commander. Islamic Jihad in Gaza fired rockets into Israel in response. The Israelis responded by killing the, the most important military commanders in Gaza of Islamic Jihad, and Hamas did nothing. This went on for five days, and Hamas did nothing. So it cemented in the eyes of the intelligence establishment, they really don't want to get into a conflict. Uh, on top of that, the last few weeks, there were demonstrations they organized in large numbers at, at the wall in Gaza, but that seemed to be a function of Qatar having cut the monies they were giving per month to Hamas uh, in Gaza and creating a sense of difficulty or the potential for a conflict or escalation uh, triggered Qatar to come back in to provide the monies again. And it seemed to be also part of a, a Hamas effort to get Israel to allow more workers to come in. Now, what was happening at the same time they were having these demonstrations, they were throwing smoke grenades. And this was covering what, in fact, was being a kind of surveillance of where were the weakest possible places in the wall that made sense to breach. So there was a kind of deception campaign that Hamas was carrying on, uh, and that contributed to the to the intel intelligence failure. But obviously, the intelligence failure is only part of the failure. The other failure was the absence of any real military presence down there. Uh, and that can be explained by two other factors. One, over the last couple of months, Hezbollah has engaged in a series of provocations on the border with Israel in the north. And it may well have been part of some kind of orchestration at deception. I'm not saying that Hezbollah for sure knew that Hamas was going to do what they did and when they did it. But I can imagine, especially because the Iranians had organized meetings in Lebanon uh, with Hezbollah and Hamas and the Revolutionary Guard. I can well imagine that, you know, Hamas was saying, look, we're going to do more. We're going to plan to do more. And it would be good for you to divert attention away uh, by doing more here. And Hezbollah did. There's a green movement that's really a phony green movement. It is really a Hamas front. Uh, I'm sorry, Hezbollah front group. Uh, and they set up towers and positions right along the border, right up next to the border uh, between Lebanon and Israel. Uh, and these were kind of surveillance towers, and then they, they stocked them with weapons. And so that began to draw more Israeli attention. Then they set up, there's a blue line, which is the UN established something called the blue line. It's in a no man's land, but the, the blue line is what the UN recognizes as the actual border between Lebanon and Israel. And they set up, Hezbollah set up two tents on the Israeli side of the blue of the blue line. And Israel basically thought through diplomatic means to get them removed, which sent some interesting signals. A, that Israel really isn't looking for trouble also. 
it's in it to cement the image that Israel with Hezbollah and Hamas is distracted because of what's going on domestically. On top of that, they fired anti-tank shells into Israel at one point, and they allowed Hamas to fire some rockets at one point. So Israel built up significantly its presence along the Lebanese border uh, and in the West Bank because of acts of terror and violence, principally in the West Bank, but not exclusively. There were some terror acts uh, in Israel itself. Uh, the, the daily shootings in the West Bank uh, produced a very significant increase in the Israeli military presence in the West Bank. Israel does not have a large standing army. So the bulk of the military was suddenly put in the north and in the West Bank and in a border where they didn't expect anything and where they felt they had a barrier and where they were convinced if something was going to happen, they would have intelligence early warning. They basically had bare bones. So all of this came together to produce what I call a perfect storm. Yeah. And obviously, it took a long time to plan this. This yeah. was a very sophisticated operation. How long do you think, roughly, it took to plan? I, I would say this was, for sure, it was, um, some say a year. I doubt that. I think this was probably four to six months in the planning stage. One reason, I just want to add one point here, because I think there's, I know there was a Wall Street Journal article that said that, you know, it was driven by Iran, gave him the green light. Um, was Iran encouraging Hamas to kill Israelis every single day? Were they providing funding and arms to Hamas? Absolutely. Uh, has there been training? Yes. Did they create some coordination with Hezbollah? Yes. Were they orchestrating and planning this operation? I, I doubt it. And I'll, and I'll give you a paradoxical reason for my doubt. Israel is so much more intelligent. It had so much more intelligence asset trained on Iran than it does on Hamas. Again, viewing Hamas as a different kind of threat. Uh, Israel would have picked up if, if, if Iran was really trying to orchestrate this, Israel would have picked that up. So I don't believe Iran played a kind of orchestrating role. I think Hamas was very good with their operational security limiting who discussed anything. Uh, it still is surprising because they clearly rehearsed a lot of things. I mean, this was fully coordinated. They laid down a barrage of 3,000 rockets. It's like when you you imagine when there are, are infantry assaults, you always create fire as a cover. They launched a barrage of 3,000 rockets, which created a cover for what they were doing uh, at the border when they went ahead and breached it. Uh, there was a distraction because of that. They used bulldozers to break down the, the barrier. And then you know, 1,000 to 1,100 Hamas fighters went through that breach. They were in pickup trucks. They were uh, on motorcycles. The, uh, every pickup truck had a, a mounted machine gun, a heavy mounted machine gun. They had hang gliders that came in. They tried from the sea as well. So this was a, what is called in the military parlance, all domains, including cyber. There was some cyber attacks to, to try to disrupt Israeli communications. One other factor to keep in mind, there are more religious observant Israeli officers now in the military than historically. This was not only Shabbat, it was Simchat Torah. Many of them did not have their phones on as a result. So again, the timing wasn't an accident. Uh, it's not the equivalent of Yom Kippur, but nonetheless, there was very slow reaction, partly because of what I just said. And there was also confusion. 
There was also no pre warning, no chatter picked up on from monitoring uh, communications from Hamas and others. None of that, no early warnings from anybody saying, hey, something big is happening. Bin Laden determined to attack, you know, one of those? The No, the short answer is no. Uh, the Egyptians are saying there are different reports that the Egyptians did pass a warning that Hamas is up to something. It wasn't more, it wasn't more detailed than that, but they said Hamas is, is up to something and you should be watching it. Now, did that warning because it was vague. And we went to the problem in the in the intelligence world is you get a vague warning and you're looking at everything else you know doesn't seem to fit it. So it tends to be treated as an outlier. Uh, was it passed up the chain to the highest elements of the intelligence, military intelligence uh, and the political leadership? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I can tell you, look, there will be recriminations in Israel when this is over. Now is not the time for the recriminations, given the shock and given what is required. But this will be a lot like what happened after 73. The Argonaut Commission uh, took, it was, its findings came out in March. The war ended at the end of October. Uh, the, the findings came out in March. The recommendations of the Argonaut Commission was that the chief of staff of the military and the head of military intelligence uh, resign. They didn't call for the political leadership, meaning Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan, who was defense minister, to resign. Tens of thousands of reservists came out in the street and demanded they resign. There will be recriminations here because the scope of this was so consequential and it was catastrophic in terms of its results. Uh, there will be, when all is said and done later on, there will be a different political reality in Israel. How angry are people at Benjamin Netanyahu? And, you know, I know this, you, as you're saying, this is not the time for recrimination, but I would like to get your analysis. You know, Benjamin Netanyahu, you've worked with him. How yeah. much of this is, can be laid at his feet in terms of how he dealt with Hamas and his right-wing policies in Israel? So let me, I want to divide that into two parts. Um, the Israeli position basically since 2009 has been consistent. So we had Hamas, provoke attacks in the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, 2012, 2014, 2021. In 2016, 18, and 19, there were more limited skirmishes, exchange of rocket fire that went on for 24 to 36 hours, much different than the others I cited. There was this basic assumption that, okay, we can manage this with, with Hamas. It's a cost, but it's a manageable cost and it's much less than the cost of going back into Gaza. So that set of assumptions has been operating since 2009 for 14 years. Yes, Prime Minister Netanyahu was the prime minister during all that time except for one year. Uh, that assumption, that set of assumptions has now been shattered. So the whole approach to Israel is gonna be different right now. They're not gonna live with a threat from Hamas. Again, we can get into what that means. So the, that's one side of it. The other side of it is a sense that uh, this was so catastrophic that there is a sense the government was responsible. There is a poll out now uh, that shows that 94% of the Israeli government, this poll came out today, 94% of the Israeli government holds the government responsible for what happened. So you can ask about Prime Minister Netanyahu. My own sense is 
you know, the in Israel, these kind of usually failures in war have real political consequences. This one will absolutely have political consequences. But as I said, there there will come a time for that. It's not right now. We have a national emergency government that was just formed. It was formed exclusively to deal with this threat. One of the premises of it is not just that a war cabinet has been created, but one of the premises, one of the agreements was nothing other than dealing with the war is now on the table. So you don't have to say the judicial reform issue has been shelved for now. It obviously has been shelved for now. My guess is it's been shelved forever. Uh, and one of the reviews that will take place for sure, I didn't mention this in terms of the perfect storm, the military was dealing with a reservist issue. Uh, there were constant concerns about what it was doing to the fabric of the military. You, know, you had reservists who weren't showing up. You had those who were doing double duty to make up for it. Uh, so there, there was a distraction. It's almost impossible to say that the leadership of the military wasn't distracted given what was going on. So you have to factor that in as one of the elements of this. And again, when they do, when there'll be a state commission of review, that will inevitably be part of what is discussed and what emerges in, in, that, in that inquiry. Right. Okay. What then is going to happen in Gaza? What is the goal uh, on the part of the Israeli military? What is the end game? Is there an end game if they are, in fact, able to get rid of Hamas or a substantial portion of it? What then? Uh, my guess of where the Israelis are right now is they haven't yet defined the end game. They will have to, for sure. They are operating on the premise that we will not, again, subject ourselves to Hamas's ability to threaten us. Now, the implication of that is that Hamas is going to be removed. Now, saying you're going to remove, remove Hamas and being able to achieve it are not necessarily the same things. What for sure will be the aim of the military operation, and it will be on the ground at some point. What is happening now is a kind of softening up. The, the bombing is going after every target they know of Hamas in terms of their military infrastructure, where the bomb-making labs are. Uh, where the rockets might be, where the command posts are, uh, where the, the bulk of the fighters could be. You know, you can't in the end root it out from the air, but you can soften what is the, the landscape of the, the battle that you're going to have to fight. And that's what's going on. And it's not at all clear, um, you know, when the Israelis will decide there's been enough of this. So that's sort of point one. Point two is, for sure, there will be an objective of destroying the military infrastructure. There will also be an objective of trying to decapitate uh, Hamas and its leadership. Now, it will be, all of this will be daunting because of the nature of Gaza, because of the density of the population, because of, you know, uh, the ability to find where these guys are hiding. The command posts typically are under hospitals uh, and under mosques, uh, in tunnels, connected, you know, in highly populated, dense areas. Sometimes, you know, one of the things uh, UNRWA found several times that there were command posts and tunnels 
under schools. So this is, you know, this is the environment uh, that Israel is going to be operating in. If you are trying to remove Hamas, then you also have to replace it with something. Uh, Israel is going back, and what was off the table for a long time was reoccupying Gaza. It's no longer off the table. They may well be reoccupying Gaza, but if you reoccupy Gaza, you don't want to stay there. It wasn't an accident that Israel was out. It wasn't an accident that there wasn't a groundswell across Israel to, to go back into Gaza. Uh, no one wants to be there. So you, if you go back in, you also have to have a way out. My, my expectation is Israel will begin to talk about quietly with us about either the Palestinian Authority comes back in, which, by the way, they will not want to come in on the back of Israeli tanks. So what you really have to think about is, can you create some kind of international mechanism, some kind of uh, transition authority uh, for Gaza? Uh, and it could be wedded to a reconstruction plan. Uh, it could be wedded to some kind of interim administration with people, te technical people, technicians, specialists, Palestinians in Gaza, maybe from the West Bank as well. You could also set up a plan for elections after six to nine months. Uh, but you're going to need something like that. I've, I've just written an article where I was calling for, with everything that's going on, you need a day after plan. And the time for a day after plan uh, to develop it isn't the day after. You need to do it in advance. We should be talking to, you know, are the Egyptians, can the Egyptians play a role here? The answer is yes, they can, but not by themselves. They won't want to be by themselves. You'll need to have others, maybe some you know, maybe some Europeans. You have to think hard about, is Turkey a possible player here as well? The relationship they have had with Hamas will create some suspicions there. Uh, some will raise Qatar, and Qatar is absolutely uh, excluded. Because Qatar right now is home to uh, Ismail Haniya, Halim Mashal. So can you explain that? Because Qatar is also an ally to the United States. And so well, how is it that Qatar is supplying a billion dollars a year to Hamas and the United States and Israel are okay with that? Well, here again, I'll divide it in two. Look, part of keeping Gaza calm was the money that, that Qatar was providing uh, to Hamas and Gaza. As I said, the Israelis interpreted Interpreted some of these demonstrations along the wall as a way of getting Qatar that had cut the money to restore the money, if not to add to it. So one thing was trying to keep things calm based on the money from from Qatar. But the the second thing is that Qatar sort of sees itself as this bridge between the Islamists uh, and you know and the Western world and us. Uh, the problem, it's one thing to be a bridge. I used to complain, they're kind of a bridge to nowhere. If you are rationalizing and legitimizing these groups, you're not a bridge. Right now, you have Hania there, and he's out there spewing his poison, justifying what they've done. Al Jazeera right now, if you look at Al Jazeera, it is focused exclusively on dead Palestinians and they haven't said word one about what Hamas did in Israel. So, you know, you... There will be those, including, by the way, to be fair, there will be Israelis who say, look, you can't cut off Qatar because for the day after, they may have a role to play. It won't be in terms of being in Gaza, but it might be in terms of monies 
they provide to help with a serious reconstruction program, to help with the enforcement mechanisms to ensure you have full disarmament and there can't be rearmament. But to have them be part of the administration, uh, I don't see that. Egypt, Turkey's a possibility. Uh, you could look at some Europeans as well. Uh, there needs to be a kind of plan for an interim administration. It needs to draw on Palestinians from within Gaza, you know, creating those, and they have, there are highly skilled people uh, who could be, who could play a role here. Uh, uh, and we should be thinking about that. It could be a transition to bring the Palestinian Authority back into Gaza. But honestly, I would like to see reform on the Palestinian Authority side. You know, if you're going to be talking about the kind of transparency and reforms you need for a major reconstruction project and plans within Gaza, and you want the PA to play a role, there should be comparable transparency in the West Bank, because actually some of the reconstruction could be done in the West Bank as well, but not unless they reform themselves. And we should be thinking in broad terms about of also restoring some of the legitimacy of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. But how is that going to be acceptable to the majority of Gazans who will emerge from this seeing most of their area destroyed, thousands upon thousands of people killed, including, I mean, most of them civilians and lots of children, oh. half the population in Gaza are children. And how is that not going to prevent another generation of really, really angry people who are furious at Israel and the United States and who would install another Hamas-like entity to, to govern there? How, you know, how, I, how yeah. No, I, look, it's a very fair question. But I think one thing to bear in mind, Hamas is not popular in Gaza. Uh, there was a poll just before this started that showed that 62% of the Gazans wanted Hamas not to break ceasefires, okay? Right before this, 62%. Um, there was a, and it's really worth seeing, something called Whispers in Gaza, uh, which was uh, an animated set of videos interviewing people who live in Gaza, voices distorted so that they wouldn't be killed by Hamas. Uh, and it there were a series of them going through what life is like in Gaza, including one former prominent figure in Hamas who was completely fed up with what they've done in Gaza. It got 750,000 views in Gaza. Don't think that when you know people emerge from this, they're going to come out and they're going to be applauding Hamas. There's a lot of anger. You're right. They'll be angry at, at Israel for sure. They'll be angry at us because we support Israel. But don't mistake the fact that there'll be a lot of anger towards Hamas. People didn't want this. Hamas chose this. They protect themselves, but they don't protect anybody there. That's why if you that's why it's so important not to let time go by. You know, I often say in good statecraft, when you have moments, you have to seize those moments. If you don't seize the moment, you're always worse off than if you didn't have the moment at all. In the immediate aftermath, there has to be such a serious effort at reconstruction to show that the world is responding, but it's in the context where Hamas isn't there. Uh, and in that sense, then you see others delivering. Hamas has delivered misery 
for Palestinians in Gaza. And we need to show there's an alternative that offers a future and a sense of possibility. Think about one of the interesting things I said before. Even Hamas understood it was in their interest to have more and more Gazans working uh, in Israel. Israel was letting more come in. They were up to 20,000, but there were many more who wanted to come in. So you have an interesting reality that they knew how bad life was uh, and they wanted something better. Is there a universe in which Israel lifts the blockade of Gaza? After yes, all? There's a, yes, there is a universe in which they do, in which Hamas is not in power, uh, in which you have uh, monitoring mechanisms for everything that comes in, including on all dual-use items, uh, in which you actually have, say, an international and interim administration in Gaza where they're actually committed to reconstruction, you know, as opposed to what Hamas has been committed to. One of the things about Hamas, they built an underground city in Gaza the, using enormous amounts of cement, wood, steel, a copper, electric wiring, you know, all of this was to protect them, not their public. All of that could have been used above ground, but it wasn't. So, you know, suddenly to have a major effort uh, at reconstruction and to show a kind of responsiveness, uh, this can make a difference. If it doesn't happen, you know, then you continue to have people wallow in a sense of hopelessness, and there will be others who will come in to claim the mantle. But the level of destruction will be unprecedented. It won't just be the number of deaths, it will be the level of destruction as well. So the need for reconstruction will be overwhelming. Uh, and again, the you know Hamas has rejected the idea of dis, uh, demilitarization for reconstruction because they put militarization, you know, fighting Israel, not reconstruction of, of Gaza as their priority. What is your estimate for the amount of deaths and what the destruction will look like? Well, the destruction is not hard to imagine uh, in terms of the the buildings, the the roads. Uh, you know, the the scope of this will be pretty staggering. Uh, the Israelis identified seven areas where they were telling Palestinians to go. They put out the message in, in Arabic for where to go. Uh, I would like to see them build up the the means for providing humanitarian assistance to those. Uh, that will reduce the number of deaths, but it's going to be hard. I talked to a friend of mine uh, in Gaza who was there and already had uh, 15 members of her family killed. And she, she said, look, we know where the Israelis want us to go, but we can't go because we she has 90-year-old parents. He said, we're not movable. Um, you know, this is a tragedy of unbelievable proportions. But you know who's responsible for it? Hamas is responsible for it. Uh, so I, you know, I don't want to predict the number of deaths, but they're going to be high. Uh, there are ways, as I said, to try to reduce them, and I hope that is done. But the, you know, Israel is not going to live again with this threat from Hamas, the the idea for 14 years of accepting this kind of a, a reality, that's gone. That's not going to happen. And as I said earlier, you can talk to the most left-wing Israelis, you can talk to the most pro-peace Israelis, you can talk to those Israelis who 
you know, want to make the most far-reaching concessions to Palestinians, they feel just as strongly about this uh, as others who don't have those attitudes. But you liken this to uh, our 9-11 or worse. Yeah. And yeah. that led, of course, to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we saw how that turned out for the United yeah. States. Yep. So when you look at that as a lesson, what do you draw from that in terms of what Israel needs to not do to avoid a similar fate that befell the United States in those two arenas? You know, what's different in these cases is this is right next door to Israel. Iraq and Afghanistan weren't right next door to us. The sense of kind of the existential nature of this, how it affects your daily life, is completely different from what we faced. So number one, that's why there's a kind of consensus. And I would say a readiness to pay a very high price. It's not just the Palestinians are going to pay a high price. The IDF is going to pay a very high price. So um, that's different to begin with. Secondly, I understand. I mean, I uh, people who I have a lot in common with are raising concerns about Hamas wants Israel to come in and get bogged down. Uh, and but they don't offer a pathway for Israel that's other that does is other than living with Hamas next door. And Israel's not going to do that. Uh, and and so I think you know the 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 notion here that that Hamas wants them to do it. At first, I don't think so. I think ironically, Hamas thought by taking all these hostages, Israel wouldn't do this; that they would deter Israel because they thought they looked at. You know, Prime Minister Netanyahu traded over a thousand Palestinian prisoners, many who were responsible for bombings in Israel, lots of blood on their hands, for Gilad Shalit, one soldier. Their view was, you know, we'll take all these hostages and this will stop the Israelis, this will protect us. And that's a miscalculation. It's not that Israel isn't sensitive to it, it's not that they won't, you won't see some effort at at rescue, Uh, but at the end of the day, as, as excruciating as some of the choices the Israeli leadership is going to have to make, and these will be excruciating, uh, they are going to deal with Hamas in a way that Hamas cannot be a threat again. So I'm, on what I'm understanding you saying is if it's a choice between not going in and maybe... And living with Hamas. Hostages. Yeah. They're willing to risk the lives of the hostages. As, as callous, yes, as, as callous as that is, the calculation is just different than it's been before. And it's awful. It is. It's awful. It's awful for Israelis. It's awful for Palestinians. Uh, but you're confronted with this deep dilemma. Uh, and the idea that at the end of this, Hamas is still there, and Hamas, if they're still there, are going to claim victory. And if they can claim victory, it has an impact on the region as a whole. You need to have Hamas seen as decisively defeated, because it's not just Hamas you're defeating. You're defeating an ideology of rejectionism that if it looks like it's successful, then has an appeal to much broader publics in the region. And it, it forestalls any ability to move towards greater normalization. You know, when I talk about the day after, I'm not just talking about the day after in Gaza. I believe, ironically, that the the Saudis are still interested in having the breakthrough, the normalization breakthrough 
with Israel, in part because of what they get from us. I would say in large part because of what they get from us, but also because they see a relationship with Israel as being of some benefit to them. Now, all of that's put on hold right now, but one of the components of that was a Palestinian component, something you do for Palestinians as well. And I had argued for, you You have two headings here. One is you improve the day-to-day realities for Palestinians in terms of movement, accessibility to water, infrastructure development, and taking tangible steps on the ground so that you preserve two states as an option. Those are the kind of things that appeal to the Saudis and would be part of this package. Well, if you can do what we're describing in Gaza and can do what I'm talking about now, you put everything on a different trajectory. Uh, And it's not impossible, but it requires an unmistakable defeat of Hamas. So you can define that in a lot of ways. Maybe it's not the removal of Hamas, but it's clearly Hamas's loss of power, his ability to do anything, and probably even uh, changing something in Gaza. And there, there may be different vehicles here. But if you destroy their, their military wherewithal, uh, you put them in a position where they're dramatically weaker. Uh, and then the, the narrative becomes, look what they did. They brought catastrophe to themselves and basically destroyed themselves as a, as a real viable force. But, but that can't be done without a ground war, is what you said. It will not happen without it. Look, it's, it doesn't matter. My analysis is not the key here. The reality of 100,000 Israeli troops on the border with Gaza is creating a new reality. The determination to remove Hamas as ever being a threat again, you cannot do that only from the air. So it's not analysis, it's the case of what are the facts. What what is the purpose of the U.S. uh, aircraft carrier doing there? Why is that there? It is, you know, we... We moved what is our the Ford, which is our most modern carrier. It's a carrier strike force. I want to explain what that is. When I say a carrier strike force, it's not just a carrier. The carrier goes with a number of other ships with it. So there are two destroyers. There are cruisers. The destroyers and the cruisers have Aegis anti-missile missile capabilities. They have extensive intelligence gathering capabilities. They have 72 aircraft. Now, this is a really formidable show of force. And I think the message, when President Biden said, anyone who's thinking about taking advantage of this, he had one word for them, don't. This is a message to Hezbollah and Iran, don't expand this. Uh, Now, will they test that? Right now, my sense is Hezbollah is trying to play a game of showing that they're heating things up along the border there are some, you know, there's some missiles being fired, but they're all highly localized right around the border. Hezbollah is signaling, we don't want this to expand, but we're going to do something. Uh, the Israelis have an interest in not turning this into a multi-front war if they can avoid it. But I want to be clear, they're ready for it. They are ready for it. Uh, the the When people think about Iran, they think, okay, Iran just wants to push this and make it as bad as possible for Israel. Make it a multi-front war. Have Hezbollah come in. And Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets. Have the uh, have their let there be an uprising in the West Bank. Have Israeli Arabs you know, disrupt things. 
They want the maximum here because Bella understands the Shia base in Lebanon does not want a war and they'll be the ones who pay the price for war. So Nasrallah has to decide, does he do what the Iranians want or does he, you know, does he keep this contained? And to be fair, the Iranians have always looked at Hezbollah as a kind of reserve force. One of the things I think is quite telling, uh, a week ago, the Supreme Leader gave a speech in which he said that normalization was uh, was a threat uh, and that those who carried out normalization would pay a price. Now, was this an early warning of what Hamas was going to do? No, I think it was just targeted on the fact that there was that there is all this speculation about a breakthrough between Saudi Arabia uh, and Israel. Uh, you know, the Iran, I think, after having after the Supreme Leader having said that, who was the first to come out and say they weren't responsible for what happened? Iran. What does that tell you? It tells you they were suddenly afraid. <laughs> they, they put one and one together and said, gee, the Supreme Leader said this. They might think we did it, and they wanted to immediately disown it. Now, they were celebrating it at the same time, but they claimed we didn't do it. Do you believe them? I believe they didn't do it for reasons I said. I don't think that this, I think, look, they're promoting Hamas, they're arming Hamas, they're financing Hamas, uh, they're pushing Hamas and Hezbollah together. Uh, they're encouraging Hamas to kill as many Israelis as all the time, trying to stoke things up in the West Bank. But the kind of, this was an operation that required complete secrecy. And again, you have to understand uh, the, the level of Israeli penetration of Iran is quite remarkable. They ferreted out of Tehran, downtown Tehran, 55,000 documents, the whole nuclear archive. I mean, they, they go and they kill the chief uh, nuclear scientist, a uh, guy who was, had constant security with him. Uh, the, the response of the guy in the Revolutionary Guard responsible, again, in Tehran, for all overseas operations, was killed in Tehran. So their penetration of the of the Iranians is extensive. Uh, and if there was real discussions between Hamas and the Iranians, the Israelis would have picked it up. So I think, you know, are they responsible in a general sense because they constantly push this, because this is their narrative, because this is who they arm and support? Yes. But were they directly responsible for orchestrating this? I don't buy it because, as I said, for very practical reasons and operational security reasons, I think it would have been exposed. Okay. Wow. This hour is flying by. Let's spend a lot more time with you. But I think this is the time when we go and uh, uh, read some of the the questions from the audience. And uh Alan asks, can a corridor be created to allow Gazans, women and children, especially to leave to Egypt? Um, I guess it, it's not possible right now. Uh, the Rafah Gate has been bombed when Egypt has closed it. So is there a, a possibility for a humanitarian corridor? If there's a possibility for a humanitarian corridor in terms of getting humanitarian assistance in. Egypt does not want to have Palestinians from Gaza coming into Egypt. So, uh, and, and Israel doesn't want to be seen as pushing Egypt to accept Palestinian refugees. That will complicate the Egyptian-Israeli relationship. 
but as I said, there are seven areas in Gaza that the Israelis designated, tweeted in Arabic, sent out messages in Arabic to have the uh, Palestinians go to those areas. I would like to see the Israelis facilitate humanitarian assistance going into these areas because that will reduce the number of, of Palestinians, not only suffering, but the number of Palestinians who will get killed. But can two million Palestinians go to these seven areas? Uh, look, they will find it difficult, but you can certainly, you can reduce the number of people who are exposed. And that's anything you can do in that regard you want to do. Should Israel allow for international humanitarian assistance to come in and at least to the, I, I would like to see them allow corridors into them or they can, you know, the way you do it, you don't do it blanketly. You you permit it during certain times of day. This is how you do it. There's plenty of experience with active conflicts where you create certain hours in the day where this is permitted or you do a, uh, a, you know, a 12 hour period where it's permitted. The hesitancy is. A, not to let Hamas operatives go infiltrate those areas, to use the respite to, you know, to try to retool. But there's, you know, there's a balance of considerations here. Uh, and it's in Israel's interest to show they are fighting Hamas. They're not punishing the Palestinian people. That's an important distinction for them. They need to be framing it that way. And we should be framing it that way. But when you cut off food, water, and electricity to the people, how are they not to see that this is Israel punishing civilians? No, look, I mean, it's a, they're clearly, the Israelis are clearly trying to set a battlefield that makes it harder and harder for Hamas to sustain itself. Here again, you have dilemmas and you have to make some choices and there are some balances that have to be struck. There is, like, you can't starve people into submission and ultimately they won't. Um, I'm not sure if we answered this, but Alan asked, how long will this operation take? Any ballpark? It depends. Look, the one thing I said, if there's a second front with Hezbollah, uh, this is going to be much longer, given the, given the character of what Hezbollah can do. Um, I think we're looking at at least a month, maybe a month or two. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have any illusions. The, going in is going to be very hard. All the people who say that you know, don't get, don't create your own Fallujah. It would be fine if, you know, if, if uh, we were 6,000 miles away from Fallujah, the Israelis were. But unfortunately, this is right next door. That's what I think some people are overlooking. Uh, Lisa asks, what course would you advise Israeli diplomats to follow? Well, I would start by uh, Publicly, first you tell the story of what's happened, which they've done a pretty good job of, of exposing what was what's been done. But I think number number two, they have to make this point. I was just saying this is about Hamas, not about the Palestinian people. Number three, create these corridors uh, into the safe areas, so they're showing they're doing something very directly here. Four, make it clear that in the aftermath of Hamas, they will support a massive reconstruction program for Gaza. Uh, just uh, take these four steps, and you can begin to to affect the, the 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 narrative and and the story of what people are seeing. And they need to do it because the the, the images are going to become more and more gruesome to see. 
So we talked a lot about the end game on the part of the Israelis, but for Hamas, what is the end game? Why did they do this in the first place? And what are their possible goals other than to shore up their own power? Look, right now, the only goal they have is survival. That's the only goal they have. And if they survive, they'll claim they won. That's the only that's that's their that's their only mindset at this point. They would like Hezbollah to come in. They would like, you know, fomenting trouble in, in the West Bank. Uh, so far, it's not happening, and that will that will only deepen their sense that the that survival is their only only. Do. Why do they do it? Uh, one, they have an ideology. People shouldn't miss this. You know, I, I asked a question. I was asked a question the other day. You know, if there was an active peace process, it wouldn't have happened, right? I said, wrong. In the 1990s, every time we made progress, we faced a Hamas bomb. Every time. there was Hamas did more than anyone to kill the peace process. The Second Intifada killed the peace camp in Israel. It's the very reality that there was the prospect of normalization with Saudi Arabia that created a huge motivator for them to act. The, the idea that Hamas and peace go together, it's that they're a contradiction in terms. That's not an argument against trying to have peace or thinking that, you know, when this is all over, you can you you don't deal with the Palestinians as an issue. It is an issue that has to be dealt with. They're not going away. But the reality that if we just had a peace process, we wouldn't have to worry about Hamas, just the opposite. The greater progress you make on peace, the more Hamas has an incentive to do what it did which is why they have to be seen as decisively losing. If there is any hope for the future, this is not just about Israel not facing a constant threat from Hamas next door. This is also about being in a position where you have a chance to change the trajectory and actually deal with the potential of peacemaking again. I wanna ask a final question and that is the United States um, obviously, we saw Blinken today standing next to Netanyahu, issuing a strong statement. Uh, the president also gave a very strong speech the other day. What role does the United States have, aside from um, positioning the, the ship, as we discussed, and providing uh, replacements to the Iron Dome and standing alongside leaders? Does it have a role on the other side as well? maybe having negotiating with Egypt to take in Palestinians or I don't know what, but it used to be. And when you were in the Clinton, when you were negotiating with yeah. that, the United States saw itself as a big power for bringing peace to this region. And that has obviously um, not been the case in many, many years. Do you think that this will reinvigorate the United States position as wanting to take a more active role? I think it's a reminder that when we don't, you see what the consequences are. I mean, look, I've, I've uh, said this for a long time back in when Secretary Baker was, uh, you know, during the transition, he was the secretary designate and I was doing briefings for him. And the first thing he said to me before I started, the least briefing was, he said, Dennis, uh, I'm not going to do what George Shultz did and just fly around the region. Uh, he ended up doing dramatically more. And I, I said to him, you may ignore the Middle East, but the Middle East won't ignore you. Uh, and this, this is, again, we're reminded we may be in a longer-term competition with China. We are. 
But to the part of that competition, illusion. And we're seeing now, you know, the you have to view everything you do as part of what's happening on the global stage and how does this fit in? And it does fit in because this is a region that radiates trouble outward. It doesn't just keep it on the inside. For the next 25 to 30 years, fossil fuels will still be important. Why we transition away from them? You want to manage your economy. Uh, it's uh, ge geographically, it's a kind of uh, central point. So you, you know, you have all sorts of reasons to be involved in the, and the consequence of not being involved is you end up having crises that suck you in anyway. And when that sucks you in, your options are always worse off than if you had been doing more in advance. Which is not to say, look, what is happening right now is not because the American administration wasn't doing, wasn't active in the Middle East. What's happening now is that Hamas decided it was going to do this. But it is a reminder to us, we need to be building up those who represent the coalition that wants a very different future for the Middle East. You know, what the, what the Saudi-Israeli breakthrough promised was a network of states that are focused on building resilient economies, dealing with the challenges of the 21st century, versus a coalition of those that only know how to build failed entities, failed policies, and failed states. We need to be on the side of those who are going to build successful states, and that has to be part of our agenda. Right. Well, thank you so much again for your time and your comments. Greatly appreciated. And um, hopefully we can talk again soon under better circumstances. I hope so, too. Thanks.